I'm Macy Chan, and I'm David Ball. You're listening to CFRO, the Pulse, here on Vancouver Co-op Radio 100.5 FM. We are your independent daily news show, reporting on the front lines in our community, and we're streaming at thepulse.coopradio.org. Good morning. It is Monday, December the 14th, and on the show today, we're talking with Gordon Caddick. You might know him from our previous interviews with Cited Podcasts. They produce Crackdown. Well, they have a new show out called Darts and Letters. It's a podcast about intellectuals and ideas for people who might be suspicious of intellectuals and ideas. And their episodes so far have looked at everything from populism and the Trump movement to a management consulting company that helped inform a proposed rebate for overdoses by the producer of the drug OxyContin, currently being sued by the province of British Columbia. First up, our news headlines. In our top story, the Vancouver Police Department has railed against a move by city council to freeze its budget for the next year, despite calls from the police board to increase it by $6.5 million. It goes against city staff recommendations of reducing that budget. On Sunday, a group of local organizers in Vancouver hosted an event online called Defund the Police, an online teaching that looked at strategies towards accountability and re-diverting resources to mental health and other issues. Here is Mayak Manuel with Tiny House Warriors speaking on Sunday. Anyone living in the city, anyone living in the rural areas where we're harassed and we're violated, our, our safety and our security is violated. Um, some of the things that we do that's, that's um, going to engage the police is the direct action that we participate in. Um, and and it, it does get real scary because we feel that at any time that we could get shot. For instance, uh, removing survey states from along the pipeline route. Both the RCMP and vigilantes could come and shoot us dead. And here's activist Desmond Cole, author of The Skin We're In. What I'm seeing that's really effective and urgent is the local stuff because the police are a local entity. The police are funded by your municipality. Even if the municipality tells you, well, we get that money from this, the province, we get that money from the feds. They're the ones passing the budget. They're the ones controlling those dollars. They're the ones legally responsible for the police force. And they have a lot more power than they want you to believe. They want to tell you to go provincial. They want to tell you, go bug the feds. That was Desmond Cole, author of The Skin We're In, speaking in a Zoom call, live streamed, called Defund the Police, an online teach and organized here on Coast Salish Territory. And you can find that event on Facebook or YouTube. Welcome back. You're listening to The Pulse on CFRO, 100.5 FM and online at thepulse.coopradio.org. I'm David Ball with Vancouver Cooperative Radio. On today's show, we're talking with Gordon Caddick. He's with Cited Media. They're the producers of Crackdown and a guest on our program before. Now he's talking about his new program, Darts and Letters. Here's a clip. We'll be looking at McKinsey and Company. McKinsey's awful record is long. Just recently, they got caught suggesting a very similar kind of scheme. Purdue Pharma made and sold Oxy, and McKinsey was consulting them. One of their plans for driving Oxy sales was to offer rebates to pharmacies. Yes, they told Purdue to pay $14,000 to CVS for each OD death. It's just worth the cost. We'll sell more Oxy. 
Before that, closer to home, they advised the grocery giant Loblaws. Loblaws spent 14 years fixing Canadian bread prices. This is how corporations operate. They exist to maximize shareholder value. And to do that, they need to make these cold, amoral calculations, like the one I just walked you through. Capitalism needs its bean counters. So an entire industry of experts has sprung up to do this work. Here's Gordon Caddick. A quick disclaimer for our morning listeners. There is some swearing on darts interview. and letters. Thanks a lot for joining us, Gordon. It's really good to have you back on The Pulse. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to, to talk to you again every time, uh, Dave. It's, it's great. Um, we've had you on before to talk about Cited and also about Crackdown Podcast. And this is a whole new one. So it's kind of cool. Change things up a bit. We've wanted to for a while um, over at... Cited Media, which which makes Cited and, and Crackdown. We wanted to, for a while, have something more regular, and this is kind of our foray into the uh, weekly news magazine format. So much more responsive as, in terms of what's going on in the kind of current affairs. One of the things that it has in common with Cited is that you're kind of bringing out ideas and intellectuals into an ordinary person's kind of worldview, into into like regular language, basically. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what the title of the podcast is like cheekily trying to convey. So um, darts, if you don't know, is like a Canadian slang term for cigarette. Um, and if you don't know the term arts and letters, it's kind of a snobby term for the learned chattering class. You know, there's a website of like literary criticism and essays and opinions called Arts and Letters. And there's all these learned societies, you know, in, in Toronto, I think there's even like a club kind of, you know, one of those wood paneled kind of places where people get together and talk about Milton and whatnot. I mean, that's, that's what Arts and Letters means. And so Darts and Letters is, is saying that, but it's not just for those people. It's for, um, it's for everybody, as we say. The intellectuals with a cigarette or joint in their hand. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, so Darts and Letters has uh, actually had quite a few episodes out already since November 17th when you launched. Tell me a little bit about who's involved and kind of what makes this show different than, you know, other current affairs podcasts for, for your average listener. Yeah, sure. So we've had four episodes now ranging the gamut. You know, we've, we, we kind of came out um, right after the election. So that was a big focus. Um at the beginning, uh, and now we've done some other stuff around like corporate consulting, around the Christian far right, around the next episode is going to be about prison intellectualism. So basically, the show itself um, is, I like to describe it as a show for people who love ideas, but hate snob culture. So you're going to hear kind of plain spoken um, scholars, but also activists and other types who have interesting ideas to share, but aren't exactly um, the chattering class elite. You know what I mean? Like the site, it has always been this way where it's been about ideas, but it's also been about kind of resisting technocratic claims of authority and exclusivity. So, you know, our goal there is to highlight the kind of scholars who do that, but also kind of ask questions about what it means to be an intellectual. Now, when you say like public intellectual or a scholar or that kind of thing, I think a lot of our listeners who are in downtown East Side or East Vancouver more generally might kind of glaze over and think ivory tower elites. But the first episode uh, of your podcast is called Pigeon Shit Bookstore. And I, I love the title. But also it kind of sets the stage for the podcast. Could you talk a bit about how you got 
kicked off? Yeah, absolutely. So um, first of all, if your audience thinks that, they're not wrong. <laughs> the, the, the whole point of this show is that um, intellectuals sort of have become this rarefied elite, and we want to kind of break that. Um, and people that live in the downtown, town east side, people that live anywhere know that intellectualism comes in all different um, guises, all different sorts of people are intellectuals. They may not call themselves that, but, you know, your neighbor might very well have a very kind of intellectual view on the things affecting his or her life, your, the people you work with, the people that you have a beer with, the people that you smoke a joint with. Um, we've all had those kinds of conversations at the bar that, like, really kind of made us think uh, and maybe you took a university class or two and then you you left the bar thinking, you know, that conversation I just had with that person was just as enlightening as my, you know, poly 100 class or whatever I might have taken at UBC or SFU or wherever. Um, so that's kind of the ethos. And so the first episode I was trying to think, well, where can I find an interesting intellectual that's not one of the usual suspects? And there's there's a guy on my block or a, f a few blocks away, just like about a five-minute walk, who sells books on Bloor Street in Toronto. And he's homeless, yet has this kind of amazing lineup of literary greats. And every time I walk past him, he's having these really cool conversations about, you know, Milton and Chaucer and Chomsky and Mill and... This you know, is Daniel. He, you describe him as the most well-read people you've ever met. Yeah, he might just be the most well-read person I've ever met. And, <laughs> and it's funny, you know, there there are people that will, you know, talk about these things, like brag about their ability to kind of know the canon. But Daniel, like, actually does know it through and through. Like, he he quotes stuff at me. He pulls books out of his backpack and starts, like, describing them at length. You know, he can tell you the background of Emerson or Thoreau or... You know, it's just it's just really cool, and and so that episode it went from Daniel, and then it talked to Thomas Frank, who's a historian, journalist, author, wrote a book on the history of populism and anti-populism. And long story short, there was a movement called the Populists, which um, in the you know, turn of the century, in the 1890s, were a bunch of farmers and um, working pe people that like created this kind of educational movement for democracy um, and radical social, political, and economic change. And they got targeted. They got besmirched as being, you know, like unwashed masses or whatever, like the, pitchfork the, the demagogues. Crowd. The pitchfork crowd, exactly. Well, that's kind of how we talk um, about populism it, today and people, there's sort of this misdefinition, I think, of it as being the Trump supporting crowd. But there is an element of those folks who don't necessarily like right-wing or left-wing politics. They just despise the elites and see somehow see Trump as not that. Yeah, exactly. I think that was a lot of the energy of the Trump uh, base. It's just like, can I swear in the show? You can swear. I've already said the title of the podcast anyways. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think a vote for Trump was just a, a way to say fuck you. Um, and that spirit uh, can get channeled to racist demagoguery as it did, but it could also get uh, channeled into kind of a broad scale, multiracial, multiethnic coalition to make for a more just society. That's what the populists thought we should do, um, what the original populists thought we should do. And so that's kind of what the show is about in, in, in one way or another. It's about um, bringing a diversity of people together. Um, talk about ideas and, and talk about ideas that actually have a chance to make things better. 
I wondered why, in your mind, we need to talk about ideas now. I just think people really want to engage in a political and philosophical conversation where they're trying to figure out how to run our society, what's fair, what's just. I mean, so much of political journalism and just journalism in general is just here's the way it is. But when you break out of that a little bit, you can see, oh, no, there, we, we could live in a different kind of um, world. But that requires some thinking, right? That requires some ideas, some maybe even some utopian thinking. So I try and have you know radical intellectuals that, that help us do that on the show, on Darts and Letters. Now, outside of the journalism context, I think all of us have had some kind of a conversation in the downtown east side, especially with people who are activists and have a real philosophical view of the world. There, there's a worldview behind it. There's a lot of thinking that has gone into why people choose to do things the way they do them, why they approach things in a certain way. I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the guests on this program, like, you know, Karen Ward, Wendy Peterson, um, yeah. Laura Shaver. They're all, they're philosophers yeah. too. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, Anne Livingston or, or Bud Osborne, right, with music and poetry. I mean, the downtown east side is full of these people who are clearly intellectuals. They maybe don't have college or university degrees, but it's unmistakable. I think you, you totally hit it on the, mm. on the head there. Um, and they do because of their, you know, not just because of their lived experience, but definitely that, but just because there's such like a rich kind of intellectual discussion there in the downtown east side and everywhere. We know this. It's not, it's not just something that is the purview of academic elites. So to give you one example, we're planning an episode right now on um, prison intellectualism, you know, writing in prisons. People, there are journalists and authors and folks. And I interviewed one person, I interviewed a prisoner, but I also interviewed an academic who um, edits a journal called the Journal of Prisons or Prisoners on Prison. And it's just a series of articles from people on the inside doing like really truncheon <laughs> criticism and policy analysis. I remember Redwire magazine was produced by Native Youth Movement back in the, I guess, 90s, early 2000s. And they had a prison column where different prisoners would write letters in and sort of debate ideas. And they talk about some philosophers that they were reading. And it, it was wonderful. And I don't know how many of these publications still exist in Canada, but there have been over the years newspapers and newsletters and prisoners unions and that kind of thing. That's amazing. I've never seen Redwire that in that column. I should I should go check that out. But that's, yeah, that's exactly right. So that that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to highlight here. So, you know, you're going to hear some authoritative scholar on every show, um, but it certainly won't be just that. So we'll we'll have those types of people, activists and artists, and and people that are doing an in intellectual kind of work, but maybe in not the traditional output. Can we talk about the latest episode just out this weekend? Uh, because I think a lot of listeners who have been following the harm reduction debate will be really interested in the aspect of OxyContin and overdoses. Oh, yeah. So our latest episode is about management consulting and McKinsey in particular. So I say that we're kind of a show about intellectuals, but we're also a show about kind of critiquing, you know, quote unquote intellectuals or experts of one sort or another. And there's this whole industry, and it's it's massive and very, very uh, profitable, called management consulting, and McKinsey and Company is one of the big four. Um, and they uh, consulted Purdue Pharma, which made, distributed, sold OxyContin, 
Um, and one of McKinsey's, there's and, New York and of Times. course, just to interrupt OxyContin, of course, is one of the is the painkiller that kind of set the stage for today's fentanyl and other opioid contamination in the drug supply. Got a lot of people addicted. Yeah. Was really pushed by doctors and pushed by big pharma. Absolutely, and and the New York Times revealed, I think, last week or maybe it was two weeks now, that at one point, uh, McKinsey, which was consulting Purdue suggested that one way to tur- turbocharge oxy sales would be to provide rebates to uh, CVS, the, the pharmacy in the United States, for um, patients who overdose or develop opioid use disorders. And we're talking rebates about, of just over $14,000. So basically they're saying- Like, hold on a yeah, second. Like gonna- when someone overdoses, they get money back to the drug maker? Exactly. CVS gets money back from the drug maker. Um, like a, like so a faulty would, product re- refund, basically, but the person is overdosed. Exactly. So you, you can money. you can see how this is kind of a, you might say a moral hazard. I don't, it, that that would be a, a a gentle way to put it. I mean, that's it's just monstrous, right? It incentivizes overdose deaths. Um, Purdue Pharma, they thought this was too extreme. Um, believe it or not, it, it is fact, quite it, extreme. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is a pattern. They also, McKinsey also advised ICE, Immigration Custom Enforcement in the United States, and they advised them on how to cut costs in detention. And they said, hey, cut the food budget, cut the medical budget. Um, and again, and I think here, we've all ICE, heard of the children is, detention centers and child separation at the border that ICE has done. Aren't yeah. they affiliated <laughs> with a former presidential candidate or primary candidate in the States? Uh, indeed, they are. Pete Buttigieg worked for McKinsey. <laughs> I heard about that because uh, McKinsey's also the people behind the uh, ripping off consumers for overpriced bread that Loblaws and a number of stores did in Canada. Well, they'll they'll deny it, but but uh, you know, according to Pete Buttigieg himself, he said, you know, what did I do when I worked in McKinsey and I was spent six months in Toronto? I was working on pr- on prices, um, on on analyzing prices for Loblaws. Um, happened to be the same time when Loblaws was in the middle of a fourteen year um, price fixing scandal. So, you know, can't say for sure if uh, McKinsey itself was uh, advising them to price fix, but I don't know how they wouldn't have known. It's interesting when you talk about like this kind of management consulting. It's so it's even two steps removed from the people who are behind these big systems policies like painkiller prescriptions or overdoses. It's already hard to kind of pin it down. And we, I think we've done that with Purdue Pharma and they're now getting sued by the B.C. government along with like half the states, I think. But in mm-hmm. like McKinsey's advice to them was estimating that 20, nearly 2,500 customers of that pharmacy would overdose on their products. Yeah, and that, that that's part of what the show is trying to look at and critique is this this conception of expertise or intellectualism as purely this kind of um, smart uh, like inve- investigation of policy. You know that that politics is basically um, devoid of anything like a conversation around values, around what kind of society we should live in, around what sorts of um, behaviors we should incentivize. I mean, they are just simply bean counters, right? And they, they are amoral, they are immoral. Um, but I think our broader political discourse is really like that. I mean, there's so much of what 
what is constitutes political journalism is just about you know horse race politics, what we can and cannot have, what's wise policy according to kind of technocratic calculations or experts at some university. But like ultimately, I think politics ought to be a question of of like Mark Mark Blythe was a guest on the show and he says he said politics ought to be a question of ends not means we're not we're not debating like what's you know is the wise policy direction at achieving some predetermined end we're trying to decide what kind of society we want to live in and McKinsey has no expertise in that they're not like you know they, they don't do ethics um, yet the reason why we we covered them is because they are now advising both the Ontario and the um, uh, the sorry the Alberta government on higher education policy and it's like well what do they know about higher education and and can the bean counter even like say anything meaningful about higher education unless you see That's children we, and teachers as numbers to move around as long as they will tolerate yeah exactly exactly and curriculum is just kind of a product uh, I mean one of the things that or this is in the New York Times article actually that the uh, about McKinsey and its overdose thing they interviewed a uh, former McKinsey staffer Anand uh, Girid Hatteras who's in the New York Times mm-hmm. um, and they talk he talks about the banality of evil and I thought <laughs> that that's a nod to Hannah Arendt who wrote about the Nazis and kind of the rise of this mundane technocracy um, sort of evil doing not by sinister maniacs, but sinister maniacs hiding behind bureaus and desks and filing cabinets. It's been a while since I read my, my Hannah Arendt, but one of the things that I, if I remember correctly about it is, you know, it wasn't that these, um, these people were idiots. Like, they weren't banal in a sense that they had no expertise. They certainly did, but it was just, it was purely technical, but it was monstrous, right? And so I think that's part of what we're, what we're trying to say here is that ultimately, you know, we need to, we need to discuss political values, um, which is what intellectuals do, but it's what we all do, right? Um, just to give you another example, of the kind of banality of evil, one of the things that we cover in that particular episode in the Vietnam War, one of the metrics that they came up with was just body count. And, um, you know, you could supposedly measure how good we were doing by, based on how many bodies uh, the U.S. military produced. And, of course, what does a number like that do? It incentivizes mass killings, like indiscriminate killings. And, and that is very much what happened. So that's not to be sort of too sensational, but that, that's what happens when you just kind of set a number um, and you don't really <laughs> properly think through what it means. And I think uh, McKinsey certainly... Um, has done that with the opioid epidemic and with uh, probably with what's going to happen in higher ed in, in Alberta and in other places. I think it really resonates too because I think so many of us are just numb from the COVID numbers, just these random stream of digits like stock numbers. You know, what's the ticker tape today? How many COVID cases? How many hospitalizations? Same for overdoses. We just have record month after month of deaths, even though we know there's very much a person who's loved and missed. Yeah, we've become totally desensitized to like mass death. It's it's unbelievable. I would have never thought it, but you know, in Canada, but especially in the United States where they're seeing like the equivalent of a September 11th every single day. It's it's hard to fathom. I mean, and so what does number crunching get you at this point? I mean, not very much. I think what we need to do is have a bigger debate about what kind of society 
we want to live in and why it is that the most marginalized are suffering so tremendously. Why are, you know, people in meatpacking plants and prisoners and um, people that have to make these heart-wrenching kind of economic calculuses, you know, they have to go out and work even though they know that they're likely to get sick because of it um, and then bring that to their family. I mean, what kind of world is that? I wanted to play a clip after we let you go. Anything you'd recommend? I think one person I might recommend is Mark Blythe, who was on our second episode and the kind of very beginning of that interview. He tells me about why he is so good. He's an economist and he predicted the rise of Trump, he predicted Brexit, and, and, and he pretty much was on the money in terms of the election results this time around. And I asked him how he does it. And, and one of the things he told me, um, which you'll hear in this clip, is just that the elites, so his like academic colleagues, are so insular that they only ever really talk to each other, that they can't see what's going on. Um, and his own working class background has kind of insulated himself from that Great. Thank you so much for sharing your show with us and for coming to talk about it. Look forward to your next episode. Thanks so much. It was such a pleasure to be on uh, Vancouver Co-op Radio again. And that was Gordon Kadic. He is an executive producer, host, and editor of Cited Podcast. He is also an award-winning radio producer and journalist, co-creator of Cited, and his new show, Darts and Letters, can be found at dartsandletters.blubrry.com. Net. Here's a clip from Trump Interrupted. Mark Blythe is described by GQ as the economist who predicted Trump. He also predicted Brexit. And shortly before this election, he said of Trump, quote, he's got a lot more left in the tank than people give him credit for. He just keeps getting things right. So I had to ask him, how the hell did we get here? And how are we going to get out of this? Your superpower is a, an unfortunate one. It is that you are able somehow to predict terrible things. How do you do it? I think part of it is I hate my own class, right? So I've basically grew up in Dundee in Scotland. I grew up in a council house with my grandmother on a state retirement pension. We literally grew up poor. I'm not being dramatic, right? And I've ended up in the Ivy League. And I hate my class, like the people that I am with now, right? On a personal level, they're fine. But basically, as a kind of, as a class, it gives you a real insight into sort of the anti-elitism that rides behind a lot of populist politics. Because they only talk to each other. And they're absolutely convinced that they're right. So basically what I do is I take a temperature of that and then bet against it. <laughs> and think of all the reasons why they're probably wrong. The fancy version of this argument, such as it is, goes back to Keynes, right? So basically, Keynes said, if you want to understand stock markets, it's basically a kind of uh, beauty pageant, but not one where you get to pick the winner, one where you have to pick what everybody else thinks the winner will be. So if you approach elite knowledge with that same perspective, right, what do they think the problem is, right? It doesn't really matter. They might be right, right? Usually they're not. But what's really important is how they see the problem. And there's a huge amount of information on how people frame problems because it then tells you what they don't see. And that's the place to look. And that was an excerpt from the new podcast, Darts and Letters, hosted by Gordon Caddick. And that's our program for CFRO 
The Pulse, your independent news show reporting on the front lines in our community. Every weekday, 7 a.m. here on Vancouver Co-op Radio. Find our previous podcasts and interviews at thepulse.coopradio.org. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada.